volunteers, family, friends, and community as a whole. We hear you. We're here for you. We stand firm and unwavering when we say Black Lives Matter. Okay. Welcome to the Truth to Power Show on Ready for Brooklyn. I'm your host, VGR Nathan. And with us today is co-host Scott Raven. Welcome, Scott. Hey there, VJ. How are you today? Good, good. Good, good. So um, our special guest is Ben Luden, who is a student of C.D. Wright, a novelist and avant-garde radio artist from the Gulf Coast with notable distinction of Hurricane Katrina refugee. His poetry can be found in Lana Turner and his extraterrestrial dispatches on Cashmere Radio, formerly on Radio for Brooklyn, um, a founding member of Abolition Apostles. He lives in Berlin, where he is director of the Berlin Anthropological Society. Um, so, yeah, so uh, just to give the, the listeners a content warning, uh, we may go into some sensitive areas, so... But for now, we'll uh, we'll keep it open. Um, so just a trigger warning or content warning to the listeners. Um, but specifically um, in regards to abuse. But for now, we'll just open the, the conversation up about uh, Cashmere Radio, uh, Ben. And why don't we talk a little bit about sure. Cashmere Radio and, and how your journey in Cashmere Radio. Yeah. Sure, sure. Um so I, I'll just, I guess, a little bit of backdrop, and um, I began doing radio kind of as in as a proxy to writing, and really when I first started doing it, it was uh, kind of a hobby in a way to use my vinyl records that have been collecting dust, um, so I moved from sort of more typical uh, host DJing um, with sort of ad-lib spoken word, a lot of uh, <laughs> um, shouting or almost like WrestleMania calls. And it was quite silly, I'd have to say, like immature, um, but with some use of sampling live, um, I might sample or, or mix back different vinyl, um, not as a, a dance music DJ, but abstractly, and also sources from the internet or files that I had um, then the pandemic hit and I started doing arrangements, um, on the computer because I didn't have access to gear and I wanted to continue the show. And that, um, eventually, um, brought me to Radio Free Brooklyn. Um, and I, I kind of, in that way, returned to some of my roots, which is, um, I do have like an extensive education in, in creative writing um, but I, as a young, uh, teenager, I also did electronic music just sort of as a hobby. And this is in a time period when there weren't really, um, at least at hand or that I knew of ways to train, to learn how to use electronic instruments. So it was sort of something that I taught myself. I wouldn't call myself a musician exactly, um, or not in, in sort of the normal sense of performance and having uh, skill in performance of um, and how that might uh, relate to arrangement, like the the qualities of arrangement that are live in the form of, of music. Like it, it was really kind of um, more more so along the lines of like what kids might do in the '60s with tape decks 
in their garages and not really knowing how to play instruments. But um, so that, you know, I, I started arranging uh, older recordings I had done and newer ones and doing a lot of uh, intensive editing and um, Audacity, which is a, a sound editor. And um, so it, it, it was kind of a, a little uncanny in a way how it started that my show moved from sort of being a DJ show to like one that very much resembled writing on the page to me, like writing poetry or fiction um, in the ways that I, I would lay out and splice things in a, a waveform editor and also in DAWs after or before. Um, and my, my little uh, period at Radio Free Brooklyn, my, my um, I was there uh, less than a year, um, and just because of circumstances, um, I ended up moving the show to Kashmir. So my, yeah, and just to back up, I guess I failed to mention the name of the show, which is No Thing Considered, um, and that is going to begin broadcasting regularly again from Kashmir Radio on Monday nights. Um, I did do a little installation piece for uh, for them a couple of months ago, but I, I've sort of been taking a few months break from uh, working on radio work so much. Um, and the the show, I, I I don't really know what to call it other than or what I do as radio art because it involves basically any dimension of radio that I can think of, like writing. Um, research, acting, interviewing, um, arranging music or abstract uh, recordings, a lot of editing, um, basically anything that might come about in, in radio. And also, um, I do have, uh, it might be a little grandiose, but um, also like to use radio artists because one day I, I would very much like to um, produce a radio play. Um, and on that note, also, that's sort of, Kashmir is uh, you know, a community radio station in Berlin, um, almost like a collective, like uh, Radio Free Brooklyn is. Um, it's broadcast on terrestrially on parts of the week, but uh, it's mainly internet format, but it does kind of specialize and things that, uh, for good or ill, um, might sort of be more in the type of genre of what I do, including radio plays. Um, and I also use the term radio art for the show because I do try to formalize, um, or the forms rather that I work in, in radio, um, often very much have to do with the medium of radio. Mm. So that might mean that I'm sampling old recordings of radio and sort of um, maybe to consider regulation of radio in the present and content regulation in the present. Um, but for whatever reason, I, I often use um, different archival recordings from radio and television. And I even sometimes use a, a little transmitter I got here that's designed for um, 
church use or, or parking lot use um, that I process recordings through that I've made or, or, or that I've collaged together and um, almost as a kind of instrument where I, I might sort of modulate the interference in the signal. Um, so fascinating. Yeah, it's, like a, it, it's like a collage of found uh, audio then you're saying? Uh, yeah, I, I collage audio that I sample from the internet or stuff mm. that I create. Yeah. Great. Also things that I create. Nice. Uh, yeah, thanks for telling us about Cash, Cashmere Radio and, and the uh, the No Things Considered. I, I guess that's a little flip on the, the All Things Considered. Uh, oh, yeah, of, that's of, singular. Of I'm sorry to correct. Oh, oh no, no Thing things Considered. considered. Yep. It but, kind uh, of trips the brain up. <laughs> I, I, I love it. I love it. Because uh, I guess that speaks to maybe the sometimes avant-garde nature dissonance of, of, of the show. Um, and I'm interested in, in you know, kind of hearing where your uh, impulse to kind of create in that fashion uh, might have came from. Um, the idea of radio collage and and kind of the layering of things. Uh, you know, when when uh, did you find kind of a knack for that, and and how you know you're kind of, I guess, processing the world within within that uh, that that format. Um, you say you do it both in writing and, and in radio. Um, yeah, when where where does that kind of stem from? Yeah, sure. Um, well, yeah, I would have to say like uh, I'll, I'll I'll get into like the technical um, structure, but like in the sense that I was talking about the radio being like a, a proxy to to the writing, it is kind of just an analogy. You know, because there there are different processes involved, but um, I so I'd have to say that like collage, um, for me started in poetry writing and in particular the editorial process, and for me um, that actually in particular came from uh, experimenting with collaborative writing. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh, also like just editing my own work. I, I, I did a lot of, um, and well, it's been a while since I've written in this style, but all, most of my writing is some form of, a associative writing, kind of like, uh, automatic writing that I kind of, uh, manipulate and, and sort of paste to cut and paste together. And I don't mean like on a, uh, in a visual format, just in the word processor. Um, so that's sort of, yeah. And I, I think that it was a, a matter of like trying to write a piece that was sustained over a longer period of time where I just didn't really have the focus or the concentration to, to write um, on a, coherent level like from a particular subject content so i was trying to string together stuff and <laughs> i suppose give the impression of of a of a subject or, or some reason for progression in the poem give a sense of momentum um right, right. yeah yeah I, i'm i'm real fascinated by by that process and whether you believe that gets you closer, like a heavily editing and kind of an outpouring of, 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 of thoughts, concepts, a layering. If that gets you closer to a truth of something, or does it uh, push you further away? Um, you know, kind of there's the idea of over editing, 
but you are putting, you know, all these various sources that are part of you, all these references. If you could maybe speak to, you know, this being, I guess, the truth to power show, does does that process get you closer to a truth or kind of obscure the truth a little bit more? Yeah, um, I would say that insofar, I, I mean, as material, um, I think that both both are possible. And, you know, like you were saying, clearly, if you're over-editing something, you are obfuscating and making opacity might be like a word you'd hear in workshops uh, or in the academic setting of making something sort of intentionally unclear. And I I think that in some ways that might sort of tie to how people describe like the uh, language poetry movement. Um, But in the sense that my thinking um, I, I often feel like it's almost incidental to, to my own personhood, meaning that, yes, like I have particular values and emotions, and of course I write from those, and we, we ought to, and that's a wonderful source of inspiration. Um, but in another sense, this process of, of editing, like in collage, Um, if we're using that term, to me, it kind of suggests that the mind and also at least as that is something you can see on the page, um, isn't really my, my truth or, or, um, very much like I do have, right. Like in terms of being my own person, but in another way, I feel like our thinking, um, the forms I might come up with ideas, inspirations are kind of incidental. And I think that that can become clear to one um, in writing in, in this kind of form of, of collage. Um, and that, you know, that does also though, like I, I have to also tie into that. Um, I guess what you could, you could, you could call at least in, in terms of the argument, um, a kind of, con like if that's a pro that it does reveal that our thinking is um not so much a possession of mine and then therefore from that that perspective i can reshape even my own life in 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 a particular order or way that speaks to a higher truth but a con of that obviously would be that this writing um that i'm reappropriating of from my own life uh is has a certain context and meaning. And when we move that writing around, uh, there's a loss or, or a distortion of context um, and, or, or rather of the meaning that, that the material was set in, in its particular context in reality. Um, that's definitely the case. Um, mm. And also, yeah, so if that makes sense, I think I had another uh, aside on that, but uh, I'll leave it at that. Yeah, no, I love how you you took both sides of that, of it being both uh, a way in and and opaqueness. And I'm I'm thinking, you know, I'm tied to, you know, the stream of consciousness and and, uh, kind of James Joyce, Mm -hmm. that that method of creating. And I know you'd mentioned, you know, Ulysses being kind of an influence of yours or, or your way into that. 
Um, so I'm also curious, I guess, to the point of, I guess, the the listener in terms of radio, as well as the uh, the reader of your work. When you know, I've approached something like like Joyce. You know, you can get it on one one uh, in one clip, but in order to to get the full grasp, you you need additional reference books to penetrate the text. Um, is it your right. hope that people will approach some of your work with outside sources? in order to get more insight into what you're expressing? That is a good question. And just really briefly, um, just to qualify, I, I am a fan of Joyce, mm-hmm. but I don't know if I could say that, that this process of writing, um, insofar as I understood it so little, it's been a long time since I've read Joyce, and there's so much to miss, like you're saying, easily, that... Um, when I was speaking of, of free writing, I was thinking more along the schools of like uh, surrealist surrealism. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, but uh, with Joyce, though, I, I think still just to answer the the question that um, I think that the work could benefit in some cases from having context. Uh, particularly, I feel that way with uh, some of the radio pieces that if I were to redo them. I would, I think I would offer like little synopses of, uh, or some kind of framing of the argument I'm making. Um, right. And I think that, but like, just to tie into Joyce more, um, there, there is so much, uh, so many formal elements. I mean, it's not just a matter of reference. There's, you know, it's multi-layered and interpenetrating, and there's a, a great deal of complexity that he massaged the material into. Mm. Um, in another way, though, like as it speaks to how someone thinks, um, uh, that that sense of, of associative or, or free um, free association in writing, the stream of consciousness. Um, that's a kind has a kind of materiality that I think is apparent to anyone reading it, even if they don't have um, a lot of the context or, or study material for the for the book. Um, but you know, once again, I'm uh, I'm pretty good at talking, like I'm an expert on subjects <laughs> of things right. that I, I've only read little bits of, or someone else. You know, this is 20 years ago, maybe yes, that I read yes, that, sure. or 15 or something, but. Uh, yeah. No, no, no. Yeah, that's what I was getting. I, I was, uh, I grew up Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man was one of my, my favorite, right. favorite books of his. And what struck me at that was, you know, was Stream of Consciousness. And then as the main character, Stephen Dedalus, aged, the prose would reflect kind of someone who was of that age or that uh, level of, of intellect, what have you, uh, as the book progressed. So, like, yeah, like the first passages were it's written as if a three year old would do. Yeah. And that kind of just, yeah, that comes out, you know, when you're, when, you know, at different points in your life, I guess you're writing, um, you know, from a different age, from a different perspective. Um, so I guess, yeah, I'm, I'm curious for some other maybe, um, you know, watershed moments in, in your life that have shaped, shaped your, your writing and shaped your kind of perspective uh, on things that then do find a way uh, into, into your work. Right. Um, I would say that, uh, you know, uh, I can't really, 
it's a little difficult for me to get around other than to say that um, my my uh, childhood, particularly my, my teenage teenagedom, um, you know, was a little rough and there was uh, some, some uh, like a lot of kids where I grew up, some drug use. And so I might tie that into the, basically the only time that I, I took um, a hallucinogenic substance uh, or LSD rather. Um, I remember, I, and I know that I don't mean to be flippant or to degradate like the, the social value of what we're talking about in, in some trite way um, of, uh, you know, uh, that you might read in Erowid, if anyone remembers that website. But uh, I, I was struck just because I was so young that I, I didn't really, this is me looking at it in hindsight, um, I didn't really have much of a language capacity to deal with the experience and sort of the frighten, how frightening it was um, emotionally. Like I just didn't have language for it. But I also remember that um, the sort of need to articulate what was happening to me like what I was seeing. And I remember sort of getting caught in some thought loop, um, almost to calm myself down about um, just some twig or stick I saw on the ground, and I just couldn't get over it. I was repeatedly saying, there's a stick on the ground because there's a stick. No, there is a stick because there's a stick. And I guess what I'm getting at is just mm. that it it struck me suddenly in this sort of traumatic uh, manipulated experience, meaning one that was self-willed or by my own hand, purely that um, just how that, that language very much has a transformative capacity mm. to to um, and that was something that just came in hindsight. And so that would be one part of like a very important experience. Um, but yet at the same time, I was reading things like uh, John Berryman. And I had just been studying surrealism, and uh, I mentioned automatic writing as a technique. It's interesting. I think that it's useful to anyone, um, but I was more so interested in the surrealist films and in the ideas of juxtaposition um, that you can find in them. And for that, from that particular angle, um, I saw the capacity for automatic writing to be analytical and self-referential so that while I'm grabbing from my own experiences in my life and mixing them up and losing, quite frankly, destroying context and some meaning in those statements, um, I could arrange my experience on the page in a, a seemingly purely associative manner that is in writing the basic idea is that you write continuously without stopping and it does very much call in strange language and even emotions while you're writing down these phrases like my god did i just write that what, the, what does that mean and you get this sort of muscle memory for it but given that looseness it also allows for one to pause and um reflect on what you might have written or even have recall of memory and I might just be thinking of something silly like, oh, well, you know, in high school, my girlfriend said such and such. Um, 
Well, and I saw a piece of cellophane on the ground and somehow my brain would just mix those things up in this uh, 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 automatic writing zone and be reformatted on the page and, and in that, or, or be uh, reformulized on the page. And in that, like, you would have no sense of what my experience was, yet it very much came from my experience in a way that is automatic writing, but also kind of imitates it. You know, I think that that's possible with, with form um, in poetry. Um, so, I had another point to make, but do you want me to pause on Yeah, I think, uh, so I'm hearing here what you said so far is that um, a lot of the collage art has to do with mimicking or reproducing kind of the way in which you interpret and, and understand the, you know, kind of the, your reality or the experiential reality. So the times are moments when you'll kind of mix at it to, together in your mind, like a, um, a memory or like a, a thought, or it'll come interfere, it'll be interrupted by maybe repetition of something where it'll have like a different meaning. That's what I was hearing you say. And also, um, the sounds around you so that the 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 um radio art is actually kind of in a sense reproducing a kind of experiential um manifestation of this processing would you say that's accurate yeah i would uh that's that's basically i mean that is spot on and you know what i was about to say was that um i also had some experiences uh later in life that um where i began to consider I, quite frankly, this, this does sound kind of a little deranged, but I started to realize that that experience was, is language itself, meaning that yeah. it has semantic meaning and uh, that that very much the I in our experience, as we relate to our experience, helps us read a poem, say, or um, a... Uh, I remember when that, when that struck me, that idea, I mean, it was a process of some days, um, but I suddenly could read a lot uh, more efficiently what I, what I had been reading and not really making any sense of. And I was in an airplane looking at the, uh, the you know, the emergency landing instructions. Mm-hmm. And it dawned on me for some reason I had never considered, well, look at this. This is in boldface font, um, underlined. Uh, and the arrangement of the of the text on, on the uh, the uh, photographs or, or the images and, and the lamination of it, it all suggested that you're not really supposed to read this thing except in a case of an emergency. And I guess that that might be really kind of uh, obvious or something. But there is, I just remember um, even sometime after graduate school where that clicked for me that like we interpret poetry or we read rather by relating something uh, by approximation to our own experience, I think it's so true that I, I feel like we can start on backwards and, and say that very much like our experience has semantic meaning. And so, yeah, um, yeah I, when I tie together these radio collages, it's like the, the same process in, in, in so far as I can relate it, like by approximation for sure. And then even... Um, as a collage, it is a collage also, but you know, there's a difference between a sentence and a paragraph and waveforms. Like I can't say that if I just cut up all these waveforms, you're going to understand it like it's an essay. (laughs) I mean, it's not quite literal, but you know. Yeah. Also, I would say that, um, you know, what we experience is uh, sometimes 
really affected by the way we speak about it. So in other words, like the language associated with the experience is half the experience or more than half the experience. I mean, the way in which we process it is really the way in which we experience it. And in that moment, in that moment that we experience it, perhaps it's, it's without language, but then of course we're reprocessing, reprocessing, we're going through it again and again, and we're kind of honing in on that um, deeper truth, the deeper reality, deeper realization, perhaps that that experience could have yielded, you know? Right. Yeah. Um, it is very much, uh, I, yeah, we do have to describe our, our experiences and um, in memory, um, there is an element of narrative for sure. I think that, you know, um, right, that like it, it's a descriptive process to remember and it must be put in words. And then the words themselves are their own experience, but also can be like depending Well, yeah, to talk about the page can very much be a part of it. And like integral, like a backbone, almost the spine of the experience, right? Why don't we listen a little bit to you? Send an excerpt from uh, uh, casual, casual, nothing. Char train or the yeah, uh, the what? excerpt from Cyclone. Should, oh. I, should I play the of uh, the audio of the audio collage? So we get a sense oh, of it. Oh, that would be great. Yeah, um, the uh, Cyclopedia of excerpt. Right, that would yeah. be. All right, cool. Let me play that now. Hang on. Thanks. Emma Ida Ilse Grace was employed at the Nazi concentration camps of Ravenspell 1 quarter CK and Auschwitz, and was a warden of the women's section of Bergen-Belsen. Grace inspired virulent hatred in prisoner Olga Lengiel, who in her memoir, Five Chimneys, wrote that selections in the Women a Euro unregistered trademark S camp were made by SS officer in Elizabeth Huss and Irma Grace. The latter was visibly pleased by the terror her presence inspired in the women at roll call. Lengiel felt that greasy Euro unregistered trademark s meticulous grooming, custom-fitted clothes, and overuse of perfume were part of a deliberate act of sadism among the ragged women prisoners. Grace, the youngest woman to die judicially under British law in the 20th century, disclosed that she planned a career in the movies after the war. She was convicted for crimes against humanity at the Belson trial and sentenced to death for the sake of clarity and record relative to the requirements of contemporary society. Executed at 7001220000000022 years, 7001670000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000000
the women were hanged singly first and then the men in pairs. She stood on this mark very firmly as I placed the white cap over her head. Grace laughed. No. Brigadier Patton Walsh stood with his wristwatch raised. Human beings seldom play music at an exact tempo with all the beats exactly the same. And, she said in her languid voice, past the row of faces. Additional images, referent, remnant, of the closure of an opening that was present in 1949. How hard it is to accept the truth. For the sake of clarity. Get the papers off the shelves. For the sake of record. <laughs> A real producer. Can I have tenure now? And, uh... I guess that's why she ran away a lot. <laughs> Everybody needs milk. Even Pat Boone's. Okay. Yeah, and that, yeah, that was ahead. a little segue there. Awesome. So I just uh, panned it out. Right. Wow. Before you talk a little bit about intent on that, Vijay, I would love to hear how just that played to you on having listened, just your kind of what you got out of it, then I'll share what I, and then maybe what 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 uh, what he did, just how it just played to you, what you were thinking of. Yeah, and, uh, definitely there was some uh, was, like rabbit holes there where there was like, you know, my thoughts are going off following the thread and then it would kind of go into music. So it was a somatic experience of like building up and then resting down or kind of settling in. Um, I'm not sure if I got any particular message though. That's why I was like a little confused, but I'd be curious what you guys, yeah, what I, kind of felt. I, yeah. I mean, I, I was very struck by, you know, the, the break from the roboticized voice for the first time. It was as mm. if there was, it was, talking about inhuman acts with and removing the humanity from them, talking about oh. inhuman acts and removing the humanity from them. Um, and it was the taking away of the emotion that inside me created the emotion about it because it was missing from it, that it became all of a sudden, uh, yeah, you know, kind of a, a robot voice speaking of kind of Holocaust uh, and concentration camps. Um, and then that was interjected by these interludes that yeah. that that uh, you know took me out of that moment. It reminded me a little of uh, what was it? I like this band, Air French band, um, and they got one song, "We Are the Synthesizers," and it just gives voice to the music. Sometimes where like, what if the synthesizer itself had a voice? What would it be actually saying? Um, but yeah, you know, well well, well layered. Um, Thank you. Yeah, please tell us a little bit more about um, yeah the background the background for it. for it. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, this is like a point where I think that I should be a little descriptive with some of these ideas. Like, but I think the the in, inhumanity thing was really spot on, and in particular, I I basically and to get back to the perhaps this is a little convoluted, but the. Uh, this idea I was talking about where like you can find of experience being like semantic to, to help you read 
um, and to find forms. I basically just came across this recording first of uh, Irma Grace, and um, I know it was basically a YouTube channel of uh, encyclopedia entries that had been clearly um, auto-generated. And because of formatting in uh, however they are generated or copied and pasted, it, it created these horrific um, mis uh, vocalizations of error that, you know, where they're saying how, how old she was when she died and they break it over how many decimal points to this sort of nonsense. Um, so like the inhumanity of like a robot voice, but also of something that's auto-generated, you know, uh, supposedly to give us a record of truth, of, of, a, of a genocide and this uh, in, inhumanity of not just of death multiplied so many times over, but um, perhaps also one that's impersonal. And uh, at least from the present or just uh, I'm ignorant, I don't or I'm not so attached uh, to to death or these deaths like um, a kind of anonymity uh, that that we don't know of. And, you know, um, so that was sort of like the initial impulse there. And then the the classical music uh, references are to the rite of spring, the sacrifice of the virgin in that ballet it's right prior to her sacrifice um or to her selection and sacrifice and then i basically just used that because that was a segue to a a song that i didn't write that um samples the right of spring during the sacrifice dance um so that was sort of so there it's like the the whole form of it came from like just this i'm like oh my god i was just listening to this falling asleep and i heard all those the, the list of zeros going on and it just gave me this idea that I could extra extrapolate from for like the entire show sort of organized that way with like different errors popping up and just there's something so brutal about instead of an apostrophe it'll say like unregistered trademark mm. euro or something throughout mm. I mean it's it's like horrendous you know I mean in a way there's some humor there too that maybe um people even younger than me might be attached themselves to more like that grew up with the internet. I sort of envision like 18 or like young 20 year old girls or, or women, or for some reason, like I feel like, well, not just women, but I mean like people that are a good 10 years younger than me would like find more humorous mm. um, than like maybe even someone my age. Cause I'm kind of on the cusp of like being a millennial um, but yeah, yeah, I can speak to that experience as well. It's like, um, you know, kind of growing up, we, we almost have a, a foot both in the Gen X world as well as the millennial world kind of having, at least in my experience, the internet only came when I was old enough, you know, I was in college when I started college. So it was old enough for, for us to have the memory of pre-internet and have the memory of all the experiences pr prior to that. And then being able to bring that knowledge into the internet world rather than being digital natives as they call it. Um, but definitely th that mentality is, is very different uh, among the generational and it's micro generations almost. It's a very small amount of time that people experience very different, um, had very oh, different yeah. experiences. Yeah. 
Only that's a few fascinating. Years, yeah. I yeah. I had never thought of like how technology can like make a gen like a micro generation or such a like just because it's really hardly any time, you know. Yeah. Um, so also, um, you know, we were talking a little bit about your experience in high school and uh, going to an arts high school. So I'm going to give you a chance to talk a little bit about that and some of uh, give you a chance because it's already 40. So we have a few minutes. I don't know if this might rush that conversation, but. Um, if you want to talk a little bit about your experiences in the arts high school and, and how that, how that kind of paved the road for your, your experiences. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Um, I basically like the, you know, the idea of this show being like, uh, speaking truth to power. And there is a question about the personal being political and, mm. um, right. So I did want to speak to, um, like my, my past there, which is, uh, I, I had the privilege of going to, a, an arts high school. It's called New Orleans center for the creative arts. Um, in New Orleans, I had an education that was much like an MFA graduate program. And honestly, in some ways it was more rigorous. Uh, when I was at Brown, uh, it wasn't so much about chops and like techniques and sort of, uh, the, the types of ways that you learn to like uh, deal with workshop. It was more uh, philosophical. They, they, they kind of assumed that you had ideology and, you know, if you're able to say like collage um, something that you, you basically had some kind of coherent view of things. But it, on the other hand though, like in terms of how much I had to read and what was expected from that, um, there is more, uh, pressure at the, or, or more responsibility in a way to, to that as a high school student, which I found immensely freeing. Um, but I also happened to be, um, sexually abused at, um, at this institution and from it. Um, and I, it isn't, it, it, it's not just like an outlier experience at this particular high school. Um, for, for me, speaking truth to power and seeing the personal as political is, uh, I had to frame that in a particular way. Like, I, I feel like that poetry very much is about making empath empathic connections to yeah. others. And really that's where spirituality comes from. And that's very necessary. But that the personal doesn't address social problems on their own. Mm. And, um, yeah. So, I mean, I could, I could talk about that. Like, uh, well, I'm a, I'm a firm believer in creating, uh, structures that support the, um, the individual person that, that it's not all about like, Oh, it's, it's nice to talk about collective experiences, but we want to make sure that every person is served properly and every person is treated with respect and treated well and we have to have structures that support that. It's easy to glaze over and, and kind of think about, um, you know, kind of the micro generations or generational, you know, kind of the ways in which, you know, all generations um, don't acknowledge certain things as being truths. And as we become evolved, we start to understand that it's important to empower each individual to be able to have their, um, have their, yeah, have their, have their development not be interrupted. You know, so oh, right, yeah, yeah um, it's horrifying. I mean, people's pains are 
are particular to them. And um, I guess I just feel like uh, just getting into psychology really briefly that um, I feel like there's a tendency to put the onus on, on individuals that are harmed by institutions that mm. are um, victims of uh, sexual assault, abuse. There's a, a kind of an onus to put that on them, even psychologically, and that in the theories, and, and that I feel like that even goes out into larger ways into politics and how we look at our identities mm. and even how we interpret religion. Yeah. Um, that like, you know, there's this onus for us to, to rep- that we are repressing memories and then that the burden is on us to de-repress the memory, but always it's, it's going to be like society that, that carries that burden forward of repression, that meaning that the, you know, these problems are a social problem too, you know, and, uh, they need to, you know, they're always going to be carried forward by society meant meaning like dealt with or not, but carried nevertheless. And also with all the problems that that causes in an organization of society, you know, has a material effect on, on how it, you know, how history develops. Um, if that I'm being a little abstract, but like, I guess I, I just feel like um, that for me, that's sort of, it's so important to see empathy, um, to, to, to recognize in myself as someone whose maturity was severely disrupted, you could say, and, and not just by the hands of an institution, because an institution is just people, and I was one of those people in that institution. Um, or in or in other institutions, and it it was very much um, by my hand too that I uh, didn't emotionally develop, and so you know I have to recognize the importance of empathy, um, just personally as someone who's you could say a little uh, immature for their age, and 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 knowing how to deal with and and take in the our experiences and, and to. Um, to to feel things, yet uh, at the same time, it's like to me what that suggests, what love suggests, is uh, not necessarily that it has to be political. But I I feel like if I if I'm given the opportunity to feel things in a way that I can relate to the world in myself and through others, through maybe the art that I make, that I have an obligation to act for others and, and for love, for that love, which is for the collective, but also the individuals in one's life. Mm. Um, and, and for myself and the past that I, that I lost or, or that I recall now. Um, yeah, I, I guess, and, uh, I guess I'm, I'm wondering if, if is, is this, this abuse that you you had encountered in in high school is this still still occurring? Is there is that cycle uh, perpetuated? Uh, have 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 you been I guess in in contact with this person subsequent to that? And if you know it was part of this institution, has has it continued in further um, instances? Um, I would say that it. Well, I don't want to, let's see, without particularly defining, like, the exact time periods, I would say that 
um, that yes, it has. And that's sort of where these stories get very complicated because um, when you deal with, say, someone like a, it could be your father or a mentor, which in this case it was, um, you interact with them also. And, and so there, a lot of this, I, I feel like, is, uh, takes the form of um, what some might call gaslighting and sort of uh, which can relate to also the ways that people are groomed meaning that they're prepared, and that's often not a physical process. Uh, in fact, unfortunately, in this case, it very much had to do with uh, the very integrity I had to offer the world, which is, you know, in ideas, and, and, um, and, and I mean, rather, in, in poetry, and, like, what I might have to offer in art. Um, so I could say that, and then... Regarding the institution itself, I don't, which is the New Orleans Center for the Creative Arts, I don't have, um, I couldn't answer that. Uh, I, the issues there very much had to do with the way the school was organized at the time, and it, I think that it could be organized differently, mm -hmm. um, but at the time there really wasn't oversight, um, and you had sort of individual uh departments that ran, were almost run like individual colleges that really had, there was no central oversight over them. Um, so that's one unfortunate part of this. And I think that uh, to speak to the collective, like uh, rather than it being about me and, and my mentor, it's, it's really uh, almost about inequality, I would say in the city and in the state of Louisiana, where instead of having equal education for all, they sort of have token education where they put a lot of resources into a few schools that basically operate like private schools, meaning that you have to be admitted on merit um, to these schools. And they put lots of money into those to sort of represent symbolically the state or um, uh, and that would tie into the image of New Orleans also and sort of the, how it's historically organized by families, like, a, and, um, for example, like, uh, in jazz, like, that's a very important part of the culture, so the families that historically might represent jazz, and I, I'm not putting the blame on any, like, a, a family as a whole, that would be preposterous, or, or even individuals, but rather that that structure facilitates privileging individuals that are put in a position of power that, have no oversight over them that uh, by the administration and uh, at least in my experience uh, no oversight from other teachers there um, who might be abusers and then given that a lot of them don't have uh, educational backgrounds as teachers um, you know it's just a, a really unfortunate combination of inequality uh, and then progress progressiveness also um, at this school, uh, the idea that you'd have sort of an art institution run by artists uh, takes away sort of the importance of maybe having people that are trained to be teachers that have a background in teaching and some form of record um, in teaching. 
for example, and to give them complete control would be like the ultimate progressive thing, which um, might be the case in a, in a basic way, but here uh, there are some unfortunate effects from that. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that um, when it comes to oversight, when it comes to understanding how our institutions are run, we have to have we have to have an eye towards protecting and uh, develop and, and allowing all children to have a safe space to have a um, you know a, um, a a good experience and that we should validate their experiences and validate their kind of their growth potentials. So um, you know, a lot of times we have like valuing certain students over others, and that definitely speaks to kind of the um, the ways in which. You know, certain parents, the background, the parents will be advocating for their children. But then if, if someone doesn't have an advocate, then they'll, they'll fall into the cracks, you know, they'll fall into the wayside. So we have to we have to make sure that, right. you know, like the, it's just a question of, you know, they, they say the loudest voice in the room gets heard, but all voices should be have an opportunity to be heard. You know, I, I agree. And, um, you know, it's funny because I'm I'm a middle-class background. My family's what they down there call Yankees, which includes areas south of the Mason-Dixon line that, you know, they're from Michigan. I'm middle-class, I'm white, but really this is uh, this sort of leaving out of the penury and the poverty, like moral penury and poverty of New Orleans. It very much more has to do with that than me. My experience itself Mm. does. And really what that, what that harkens back to is Jim Crow and the way that integration played out in a city that um, did quite a bit to, uh, to escape and to prevent uh, integration and the ways that they did that. And then um, not really taking account of that very much has to do with my experience as a uh, you know, this outsider, middle class and white and from the suburbs of New Orleans. Um, right. So it's it's just the point, just to go back to the historical, the importance of history yeah. and like understanding my place in history. Like I that's sort of the onus I would like to put on the listener, if possible, like from my statement. It's not so much about me. And in that way, I feel like even as a trauma victim, like if I accept that I that the onus is on me to de-repress, then I'm liable not to take responsibility to my stake to and in a society. And in, even as a victim, I I become I could become part of what I like to call the American college football in each of us. Mm. Yeah, where um, and can you, uh, I'm not sure if I fully understand that, but I think uh, you know what you're saying is that. Um, we have to balance out the idea that uh, the ideas that empowerment versus you know holding institutions responsible is what you're saying, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, I'm a social being, so I'm responsible to others. And I, I guess what I'm saying is like that is really convoluted, abstract, really. But um, I feel like uh, my identity really is socially determined. And like that, like I, I am who I am because of society. And if, if we don't, I feel like there's an importance to recognize myself and my feelings and how I was hurt, but also 
that that doesn't that should not compartmentalize or separate me from my responsibilities to society. Yeah, and I feel like sometimes it does with this type of talk, like the some of the Me Too talk, like just considered superficially, it doesn't really deal with like if I accept that like it's just on me or like for me to deal with my own trauma, then I wouldn't necessarily think about my place in like the history of new Orleans or like what I might be able to do for that, which might very well be doing some kind of avocation for black kids or for those in prisons. Yeah. I think also the, the idea of the football thing brought up, I think it has to do with uh, amplifying or um, galvanizing people who are kind of insular in their thinking. Would you say, is that what you're bringing up with the football? Like they were like amplifying that, that insular mentality. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's uh I was being a little sardonic. I guess it's just like if I like if I accept that institutions aren't people, then I'm not responsible to how I contribute to how institutions act. And I mean like how a city acts to say my abuse or, or someone else's. Like I have a responsibility. I have to recognize that the institution is there is no institution or rather there is no system. There are just people. There's no justice, there's just us. Like, in that kind of sense, like, if I accept that I'm just, like, this bubble of trauma that needs to be resolved in some Freudian tradition, then and I'm not responsible to where I am, then, like, I'm privy to, like, or I might not, uh, I might rationalize not dealing with, like, my relationship to, to the society. Yeah. And so, like... I guess that's the, the the college football thing. No, I understand. I understand. Yeah, thank you so much. And that was a really good note to end on because we were just about to end. I just want to tell listeners, this is Radio Free Brooklyn. We're a 501 nonprofit organization. We're here to provide a free and open platform to our community. Brought me to literacy, education, free expression, and public art. Uh, we rely primarily on donations to listeners like you. Every dollar helps us continue to stay in air. It helps us continue the work in our community. Um, please donate at radiofreebrooklyn.org slash donate. If you're an Amazon shopper, please go to Amazon at RadioFlickin.org slash Amazon and register RadioFlickin as your Amazon small charity. And be sure to subscribe to our monthly newsletter for latest news about programming and upcoming RFP events. You can sign up at RadioFlickin.org slash newsletter. All right, so, um, yeah, thank you so much for being here and being present for this conversation, uh, Ben. And uh, I hope people look at more of your radio art and support you and support this movement towards accountability and uh individuality and and empowerment thank you thank you thank you we'll go out with the uh, anime's uh detach
Thank you.